You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Mark Jenkins. He's the head of global credit at Carlyle Group, which runs about $301 billion in assets. Mark manages about $73 billion in credit assets. He has a fascinating career doing all sorts of work across the credit universe, and there aren't very many people as knowledgeable as he is uh, in as many types of fixed income and credit investing as he is, whether it's aviation, real estate, liquid, illiquid, private investments, um, distressed assets, really across the board, uh, his focus on alternative credit assets is quite comprehensive. Carlisle is one of the fastest growing credit shops and private equity shops out there. They're publicly traded. And I just found this to be a master class in how to put capital at risk when you can't get a whole lot more than one and a half, two percent in fixed income, but you don't want to see the same sort of volatility and risk that you see in equity, what's the sweet spot in between the two. Uh, Really, just an absolutely fascinating conversation, and uh, I learned a lot, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my conversation with Carlisle Group's Mark Jenkins. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Mark Jenkins. He is the managing director and head of global credit at Carlisle, uh, the private credit and investing giant with over $300 billion in assets under management. As head of the global credit desk at Carlisle, Mark oversees $73 billion in assets under management. Previously, he led the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board's Global Private Investment Group. Uh, And prior to that, he was at Barclays, where he was managing director and co-head of Leverage Finance. Mark Jenkins, welcome to Bloomberg. Barry, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited about this. This is an area that I don't think people understand or or hear enough about. It's usually all day long equities. And I'm I'm excited to talk a little bit uh, about the various types of credit you manage. But before we do that, let's get into your background a little bit. You attended Queen's University in Canada, mm-hmm. where you earned a commerce degree. How does that translate into an interest in credit and investing? Yeah, sure, Barry. I think 
You know, when I grew up, I grew up in a town called Oshawa, just outside of Toronto. And, um, you know, growing up, I didn't really have uh, any influences that were in the business side. And so as I was kind of progressing through my childhood and through high school, I sort of was very interested in commerce and how that works. So, you know, my first job really was working at a corner store where uh, I used to stack what we would affectionately call in Canada pop bottles, but you right. would call soda bottles. I did that uh, as If you're well. in Minnesota, you might call them pop bottles as well. And I used to uh, sweep out the uh, the parking lot as well. That was sort of my first job at 13, and I was very interested in how that gentleman ran that store. And my brother-in-law actually ran a small lumber yard in town that I worked at as well. And so I was very, very interested in how businesses worked, you know, how that operationally worked, not just the actual element of, of working at them. And so I kind of looked at people who had progressed into business and most of them in Canada at least had commerce degrees. So mm. that's how I went to Queens Commerce. And you come out of school, uh, you end up at Goldman Sachs pretty early in your career, right? Yeah, actually I took a bit of a short stop first. So I, um, back in the day when I was sort of again trying to explore how to get into business, I noticed a lot of chief financial officers in Canada had a CPA or mm -hmm. back then a CA. And so I actually uh, spent two years at Coopers and Lybrand working on my CA in Canada. You have to intern at, a, at a, an accounting firm. So I worked there in corporate audit and business investigations, which basically back in 1989-90 did a lot of the bankruptcies in real estate. So in fact, one of my early experiences was working on the Olympia New York uh, bankruptcy oh, sure. with the Reichman brothers. So, yeah. so I have to imagine that's a useful set of skills to have when you're trying to decide hey, am I going to see a return of capital as well as return on capital for this particular credit? Yeah, it's it's certainly taught me how to understand like how you're going to get your capital back, if you will. I think mm -hmm. that, you know, that I think my early formative years in terms of business was one of skepticism because 89-90 was, at least in Canada, was huh. going through large, you know, recession, predominantly in real estate. ONY had overextended itself, building out in Canary Wharf at the time. I recall. Cross-collateralization that was kept from all the banks, of course, which was part of what we discovered. And I think my formative years it was started with a lot of skepticism, which probably led me into credit as a result. So so from uh, Coopers and Librand and, and accounting, how do you make your way to fixed income and, and Goldman? Yeah, sure. Well, I, uh, I, I realized that the accounting profession probably long-term wasn't going to be for me, and most people would move on to something different. I had uh, some friends who worked over at Goldman Sachs, which frankly I didn't know a lot about at the time. Uh, I walked across the street in Toronto, ended up working there initially in, um, in controllers, uh, but eventually worked my way into being a credit analyst there. Uh, and, you know, very shortly thereafter, I moved down to New York and spent actually most of my career in New York working for Goldman uh, and always on the credit side. So Goldman and then you end up at Barclays where you were co-head of leverage product. That that sounds like that's an aggressive uh, portfolio. Is it what it sounds like? Yeah. I, you know, I'd spent over 11 years at Goldman I learned a tremendous amount of that organization uh, as it, you know, transferred from, transformed from basically being a partnership into a corporate mm -hmm. uh, and all the changes that go with it. But it was an extraordinarily um, fertile time for me in terms of growth and development, in terms of just being very entrepreneurial and commercial. And I love that aspect of it. But Barclays, uh, a couple of my friends had left Goldman to start up the leverage finance business there. And really for me, it was, it was an opportunity to learn how to build a business. Uh, I was, you know, spent all my years doing very highly structured uh, transactions on the credit side, being a credit analyst, et cetera. But it really, what I hadn't learned is the business side of it. And that was a great 
you know, formative time for me, which which kind of led me into my next move, which Canadian was, pension plan, correct. which is, sounds very different than prior experience. Yeah, very different, but but similar in that you know, I, um, my former boss used to joke when he hired me that basically I was joining a hundred billion dollar startup. Because the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, in fact, is manages what you would think of as, in the U.S. terms, excess contributions to Social Security, if there was such a mm-hmm. thing, which there isn't. <laughs> um, but Thanks. but that's effectively what you're do. You're managing those excess contributions to the Canada Pension Plan, and for me, it gave me the ability to take all the knowledge I learned on the credit side, the business building opportunities, and transform that into a private credit. Um, direct private credit investment platform for CPPIB. And later, you know, as I progressed there or stayed there, I guess I ended up running private investments, which included private equity, infrastructure credit, energy credit, and some other assets. But generally, I'm a, I'm a practitioner in the credit side. So, so when I was doing my research into your background, you have family members who are investment investors and pensioners into the Canadian pension plan. How did that, police teachers, pensioners, things yeah, like that, yeah. did that impact how you thought about doing your job? For sure, for sure. I think that the the greatest takeaway for me, and I take that to my job today, is like, know who you work for. And for me, I have a 91-year-old mother, and she would say to me every week when I talk to her, how are we doing? Because <laughs> it's her money, right? And so my, my, my mother, my brothers are about 18 years older than me, so they take the Canadian pension plan right now as well, and my sister. So they're all beneficiaries of that. And, it, and on top of that, my brother and my other brother, they're both were, one was a teacher, one was a policeman. So they also benefit from the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Plan and Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. So they're all beneficiaries of these large pension plans in Canada. And I think what it, what it really did is made it real made it real for me in terms of the money that I was investing, the sacred trust, where literally 19 million people are giving you money to invest on their behalf, is a sacred trust. And so I used to say to the team at CPPIB that that's a special place to be, and that has a a higher duty of care in my mind, uh, because think about if you lose $20 million, that's like the entire city of Peterborough contributing to CPP for a year. So that really puts things in perspective. And, I, and I've taken that with me now because now I work on behalf of many beneficiaries and fiduciaries across the globe. And I, and I do still think it's a sacred trust and it's a privilege to manage money. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about uh, credit and fixed income side for your career. What, what led you to make that leap from, from a credit analyst and a fixed income analyst to actually managing uh, credit portfolios? Yeah, Barry. I, I, you know, when I think about just being in credit generally, people ask me that all the time, and I, I, I look back in my 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 not illustrious sporting career, which was, you know, soccer, hockey, and I always played defense. And so I never really played on the offense. I was always trying to keep the puck or the ball out of the net and helping people do that. And I think when you you think about credit, what you're looking to do is there's a contract between me and you, and I give you some money, and at the end of that term of the contract, you give me the money back. That's that's defense. I'm not looking for we're not looking for massive upside that you, you know, shoot the lights out on the equity side. And so it always seemed to be a very much a comfort zone for me that I could operate in an area where I could understand what was going to allow me to get my money back at the end of the day. And all that training at Goldman had taught me as a credit analyst, that's what I was always thinking about is how will 
this obligor give us the money back at the end of the day so that you know we're in a good position and we're minimizing our credit risks. I think the other thing that Goldman really taught me was how to mitigate risk and downside and really focus on the downside in a lot of situations. And so coming at investing from that perspective naturally led me to a better credit hat than it ever did equity. And in fact, I did run equity private equity at, at, at CPPIB. I think I was okay at it, but I definitely majored in, in credit. Um, so that's the path I pursued, and, and I, it's, been, it's been fruitful, and I, I really find it fascinating. I know I'm a credit geek, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm intrigued. I love the soccer-hockey metaphor. Uh, I have a friend who's fond of saying, a bad year in fixed income is a bad afternoon in equity. Yeah. And, and it's really yeah. kind of true. What's the worst year high quality fixed income has not not that bad because of that return on of capital yeah and i you know i think for anybody who manages a portfolio and getting back to that you know managing large portfolios at a place like cppib is you recognize we're just like one exposure in somebody's broad portfolio right. so you got to think about what you're meant to deliver into that portfolio and that is a very stable, persistent return through cycles. And that's, to me, what credit encapsulates from an investor standpoint. So so let's talk about some of those different silos of capital. You, you have a couple of different credit segments, liquid credit, illiquid credit, real estate assets. Am I missing any? Or is no, that that's it. Those pretty much th- covers the big three. Yeah. So break those down for us, if you would. Yeah. The, so what we wanted to do, and from my experience on the other side and experience at these other organizations was explaining credit, which isn't really a monolithic asset class. Like it has a range of exposures and a range of expected outcomes, you know, through time that we really wanted to be able to deliver to investors that range of risk return outcomes, right? And so if you think about you know, non-investment grade credit, you go from leveraged liquid loans, CLOs, mm-hmm. which is the liquid credit side of things, to direct lending, to opportunistic credit, to uh, distress, which is really private or e-liquid credit because it doesn't trade. And then there's real asset credit, which involves assets like real estate, infrastructure, in our case, aircraft, aviation, where the underlying security and cash flows are determined on hard assets. And all of those, from an investor's perspective, allow you to um, put together a portfolio that is diverse away from just single name credit. And I think that's what people, like on the institutional side, I know that from experience, that's what we look to do in my portfolio in my former life, and that what people are doing today. So that was point one, we wanted to be relevant to our customer, if you want to call them that, the, the investor. Number two, we got to be relevant to the user of capital, right? Like it's by having a platform approach, which really kind of covers that span, that broad span, we can be relevant to almost any borrower in the world for whatever they want to do, right? So they may have some real estate, they may have ongoing cash flow loans, but you can put them together and you can deliver an opportunity. Why is that important? Because it allows us to have the widest funnel from an origination standpoint that we can and leverage that Car- Carlisle network where we're operating on a global basis. So that's that's really those three verticals really feed into what we're trying to accomplish from a platform perspective. So I understand real estate obviously is gonna be collateral in that space. When you talk about hard assets and aviation, you're referring to the actual aircraft? Yeah, the, the actual fleets? aircraft. I mean, the actual metal in the sky only has value to the extent you have 
a contract to lease it out. So it's not it's not just enough to have the airplanes. What's as important is to have the relationships with the 110 plus airlines that we do on a global basis in some 80 plus countries around the world. So we have that diversity and maintaining that long-term contract. So through this period of time, which a lot of people would say, geez, it must have been a really tough time in, in global aircraft, sure. which it has been, you know, we've been able to take advantage of restructuring and terming out our long-term leases, which is good, gives us lots of optionality, but also take in more aircraft. So we've now actually risen from being, I think it's the 15th largest lessor in the world to the sixth largest lessor in the world, as long as we close on Manchester, which was announced just before Christmas. So, so we really leaned into something where the metal in the sky is relevant, but as relevant is are the long-term contracts that you have with the um, with the airlines. And so essentially you're making a bet that we will eventually return to normal, travel will recover and and people will move about the country as they or the world as they as they were pre-pandemic. Yeah, at a macro level, absolutely. I think that's true. I think the the other thing I would layer into that is there has been a shift in terms of the older aircraft that have been retired. Mm-hmm. So the the actual inventory has shrunk, and the, the actual OEMs, Airbus and Boeing, have actually shrunk the number of planes they're producing. So there is there's another technical factor going that you're having old aircraft retired because they're not economical to right. fly. And you have the OEM slowing down, so it actually makes our midlife aircraft much more valuable if you're trying to have a very economical asset in the sky to fly from. Makes sense. You constrain supply with the same demand. Prices are going to go up. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Steeple. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So so let's focus within the illiquid credit yeah. silo. Tell us a little bit about private credit, because I, when I hear that phrase, I tend to think of merchant banking and the sort of mid-level bank services that Wall Street has sort of grown out of and only focuses on 
the largest companies, but there is a lot of, you know, really substantial amount of um, firms and activity in that space. It just doesn't seem to scale to public Wall Street uh, activity. Yeah. A little bit of history, I guess, is probably worthwhile. If you went back to 08, 09, uh, which, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to be in the credit markets then to, to, to work through that, which was very, very interesting. What you found is the banks had already started to retrench from the lending market. I mean, that, in fact, had started be- well before 08, 09, in the late 90s, more or less. Uh, and the institutional market, specifically on the loan side, started to increase. And if you went from 0809 to call it 2020, if you saw the amount of credit inventory that banks were carrying to today, that's down 80%, you know? And I put it in simple terms is they're no longer, um, they no longer hold inventory, they're shippers of mm-hmm. risk, right? And in that void, if you will, you had an, a couple other things happening. One, you've got a 30-year decline in absolute interest rates, which we've all observed. And... Um, you've seen a, a rotation as a result of that of these larger institutional funds that have to make returns that are in the high single digits rotate into illiquid assets. The first phase of that, that was in private equity. People mm-hmm. looked and said, I can pick up 500 extra basis points on average if I go into private equity, plus or minus 100 here or there. I'm, I don't want to be exact on that, but just approximate. And they made that rotation. That happened coming out of 08, 09, and we've seen that progression. The next wave is people who are in fixed income who are picking up 2 3% in corporate bonds and rotating to the extent they can allow themselves to be more illiquid, picking up 100 to 150 basis points by going into privates. Now, it's not obviously without risk because you want liquidity, but I think 08, 09 showed us that you may be overpaying for liquidity. Because I lived through that period of time, and what you could sell was the best high-quality liquid <laughs> names, and anything that wasn't high-quality wasn't all that liquid. So the risk, you know, premium you were paying for that was pretty substantial for the, for liquidity. So what we what we have today is a private credit market that's grown from 300 billion, and it's over tripled to 1.1 trillion today. Total alternative assets today, as of the end of last year, 8.9 trillion in a market where the combined fixed income and equity markets are 229 trillion. So alternatives as a whole are pretty small in somebody's portfolio. Right. right. Private credit is it's a 1 to 9 ratio in terms of total alternatives. On a path where we've tripled in size, over tripled in size since 0809 and what we see because of all those dynamics the banks retrenching the, the rotation into alternatives is a 10 to 12% CAGR over the next five years. Huh. So it's, there's, you know, we don't hear about it because it's relatively small, but it's, it's a part of somebody's portfolio and it's becoming increasingly more important. So you mentioned the um, 30 plus year bull market in fixed income with rates falling uh, from the early 80s and Paul Volcker, 15, 20% down to close to zero. What was it, the bottom of the 10-year, about one-something, one-two, yeah. one-one? Uh, it appears that that 35-year market is coming to an end, and we're looking at a combination of both rising inflation and higher rates. How? What sort of challenges does that present to you working in credit markets where, hey, maybe rates are going up, maybe inflation is is going to impact our our uh, real adjusted returns. 
How, how do you figure that into your calculus? Yeah, well, the early early returns are, if you look at high yield, it's down 4% year-to-date. That's relative to the S&P 500, down 8.5% year-to-date. Right. It's a hedge. Leverage lo- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Leverage loans are flat. Now, why is that? Because they're floating rate, zero, like 0. Right. 0.5 duration versus a longer duration fixed income bond. So right now, it's pretty clear that the move in interest rates is impacting valuations, right? It's not, there's not been a fundamental shift in credit yet, although default rates, you'd imply with spreads right now that default rates went from the end of year at 1.1 to maybe 1.25. Still very low, though. Very low still. Right? So I think the early returns are um, really indicative of interest rate moves, which by the way, we should have expected. I yeah. mean, I don't know how long people thought the punch bowl was going to stay there, but we couldn't believe we're going to stay at that, that level forever. So none of this is unexpected. I think the shock of the moves is always, I find in the market, unexpected by people, but it, it should have been expected. So as you think about investing, if you think about it from a return perspective, you've got that hedge, if you want to call it, against rising rates. What we're not seeing yet, but this is what we I think we get paid for, is the credit impact of a slowing economy with rising rates and inflation. And that, you know, that's where I think we've moved from 2021, which was, I would say, arguably a macro-focused trade, if you want to call it that, even mm-hmm. though we're long-term investors, to very much focusing on the micro, which is security selection and portfolio construction. Because the one thing I've learned in 31 years is the only thing that's protected us ever coming out of like a massive disruption in the marketplace is a high-quality diversified portfolio. So that's how we're focused today. Inflation is a, is not so much where we think rates go in terms of how I think about it. It's how does it impact the companies that we are lending to. So for instance, we have a company recently, um, they call it like a staple food provider, mm-hmm. uh, white label it, and the biggest cost to them is the inputs of the food, sure. obviously. Gone up dramatically. We're, our concern was, is was that were they able to pass that on to the distributor? Large distributors, you could think of, of, of food in, in the United States. And the answer is, they were. Okay, so that's a good thing. What we're trying to do is look at portfolios where that ability to pass on costs or absorb costs is greater than things that are more sensitive to it because we know that's going to hurt margins and EBITDA growth. And that's that's what we're focused on right now as we think about inflation, not so much how it affects interest rates. So that's interesting you're, you're using that as a single example because when I was learning about what you do at Carlisle, you know, sometimes I look at a particular manager and they're all about the selection. Other times, and I'm going to throw this to you, it's more about creating a platform that they can um, operate off of as opposed to being so focused on the granular single company selection. Tell us a little bit about the platform that you helped develop at Carlisle. Yeah. Our platform approach is really informed by my time at CPPIB. And what I learned there were they were agnostic to product in silos, they were simply seeking out the best adjusted risk-adjusted returns. And if you looked at the old days of 08, 09, things were very siloed, high yield, leveraged loans, 
distress, maybe special sits, but they were very specialized. Mm -hmm. And what we learned, or I learned at least with my team at CPPIB, is by having a broad platform that could connect to the information flows coming in from the public market side, coming in from the private equity side, you know, coming in from our infrastructure and real estate, helped inform opportunities and it allowed us to move three cycles to where those opportunities were. So for example, uh, today at Carlisle, what we were able to do is, as we were going into 20, 2020, we were obviously working across the platform in direct lending and opportunistic credit, not really any distress, doing really regular way performing deals. And when the market dislocated in April, March and April, it felt like 0809 again, and we were able to go immediately to the secondary market and deploying the leverage low market, where things were trading off dramatically, so chartered communications, trading at 72. I didn't need to be a genius when I looked at the market cap of chartered communications right. trading at 72 to recognize I'm probably going to get my money back, right? So if you don't have a platform that allows you to pivot, you can't take advantage of that. So what we've done deliberately is have this cross platform approach, both in product set, expertise, but geographically, so that we can swing to where those opportunities are. So for instance, in the past, I'd say six months, we've seen a lot of opportunities coming out of Europe because the US capital markets tend to heal themselves a lot quicker and stabilize quicker. Europe, because of the multiple different jurisdictions, tends to take a little bit longer. We're looking into Asia, we see opportunities there evolving. If you don't have a broad platform that's connected globally, it's very hard to take advantage of those opportunities to swing your capital to where those opportunities are. Huh, really, really quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the state of credit today. You, you mentioned global credit um, generally has grown. You've grown your platform um, to $73 billion as of the end of 2021. That's about 2x what it was four years ago. Uh, and it's one of Carlisle's fastest growing segments. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in terms of fundraising and, and how much of this is performance related. Well, you can't raise, what I've learned is you can't raise money without performance. So, so one, <laughs> figure. one begets the other. Uh, I, I would say that what we what we're want to do is I think the, the thing that's really important as we build up the platform is a lot of people say, you know why do you, why does scale matter? Well, scale matters because it allows you to take advantage of the best opportunities on a global basis. So we want to be scalable so that we can do any transaction that we want to do globally. Period. And that was the goal of getting to scale seventy billion, eighty billion, ninety billion. Like you're in the snack bracket where you can do any transaction you want right. and being very selective. What that also leads to is that. You know, each successor fund, more people want to participate. Right. So that is an ongoing growth trajectory that we just deal with. If you have poor performance, well, guess what? People don't want to participate in your funds. So far, touch wood, in the six years that I've been involved, our performance has been, I think, very good. But the most important thing, and I, and I said this before, is that we're there to deliver an expected exposure into somebody's portfolio, consistent and persistent through time. Mm -hmm. And that is something you demonstrate over time. And so far, I think with the team that's there, which is excellent, by the way, they have been delivering those returns over the past six years, even through the pandemic, which is really important. I think the next 12 to 24 months, you know, we're going to we're going to have some challenges. Everybody's going to have challenges. And but I think the, the, the portfolios are well positioned for that. That. But what it also means is when we talk to our investors is they need to invest capital. 
Like that doesn't stop just because the markets are volatile um, and people are rotating more into private credit as you and I discussed earlier. And so we're seeing that growth. So we're trying to balance our growth versus what the opportunity set is. And the one thing I had learned from my prior life is that, you know, there is a certain growth trajectory that if you get beyond that, and I almost had infinite capital at my prior job, but you don't have infinite opportunities. And so you have to continually build the team and the platform that allows you to scale into the opportunity set to be able to prosecute it. If you can't prosecute it, then you may end up in a not a good place for your investors. And so we're very thoughtful about that. But the programs that we built out have scaled mostly because we've been able to do those larger size transactions and control them on the front end. And I think, you know, we'll continue to to, to leverage into those programs where we're being very successful. So so you raise a really interesting point, which is there is only so far this can potentially scale. You were talking 70, 80, 90 billion. I'm assuming that this can scale up some multiple of that. How large can private credit grow, um, even though it's such a relatively tiny portion of overall investable assets? Uh, where's the ceiling? Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I can predict the ceiling, but I can tell you that our forecasts and belief is that it's it's growing at at least 10 to 12% CAGR per year from a $1.1 trillion base today. Right. I know it sounds ridiculous to say from that relatively small base <laughs> of just a trillion dollars, yeah. but in the grand scheme of and, thing, but if you think it's of the, half a percent of global assets. And, but if you think about, it's a very small part of global yeah. assets, you're absolutely right. But if you think about the participants, even the largest participants aren't greater than 150 to 200 billion. Huh. I mean, that sounds like a lot I know, but in the context of that, it, there's not like a clustering at the very top yet. So I think, you know, we're going to grow with at least the market. Obviously, you know, stakeholders would like us to grow beyond that. I think if we do that in a very thoughtful, deliberate way, that's fine. The other thing we pursued, which is slightly different than maybe some of our peers, is we do have that three pillar approach across multiple strategies. So any of those strategies in and of themselves can scale to 10 or 20 billion. But if you you know took that in, in, in totality across the platform, that adds up to a lot of money to manage, right? Yeah. And so what we've really purposely tried to do is say, where are those veins that we think will expand? Infrastructure, real estate credit, aviation, you know, corporate credit as a whole, obviously, liquid credit. You know, today, if you look at the leveraged loan market, it's 1.5 trillion. It, it was less, much less, three to four times what it was in 2008, 2009. So, you know, we're trying to stay in those large markets where there's scale and we can scale along with it. So I'm going to circle back to infrastructure and leveraged loans. I want to refer to something that you guys said on your fourth quarter conference call, which was, as a firm, we expect to see global credit have a breakout year in 2022. Um, given all the turmoil we've seen and potentially rising rate environment in, in the face of inflation, why should we expect 2022 to be a breakout year for global credit? Well, twofold. One is, I think, you know, that operating platform I talked about is mm -hmm. in place. And so once you, you put the operating structure in place from an, an investment and origination perspective, I mean, it really does allow you to scale and be much more efficient. So that's, that's point one. We have multiple avenues where we raise capital. We've got CTAC, which is a which is a uh, retail product that goes cuts across our entire platform, and that is uh, very attractive for investors where they're getting, you know, a very 
current cash dividend in the high single digits. And that feeds into our business. But then you've got these new verticals that you and I have talked about on the real asset side, which are growing probably faster than I would have thought because people are finding that extremely interesting uh, from a portfolio construction perspective. But then lastly, on the opportunity side, the volatility is a good thing for us because as you and I talked about earlier, our ability to swing across the platform and take advantage of opportunities, volatility is actually um, creates vast opportunity that was difficult, I would say, pre-pandemic. And pre-pandemic, we were in a, you know, a pretty well-priced market, we thought, um, where it was it was tough, tough sledding for opportunities and very competitive. And now um, companies that would typically have access to the capital markets who may have a more complicated story, you get one speed bump in the market and some negative sentiment. There's still good companies in the long term. We're allowed, you know, we, we're allowed to kind of go in and do the work on a more complex situation and do that work that the capital markets won't do because they don't have access to that information and it creates opportunity for us. And and so we're, I don't want to say excited, but we've been looking for some volatility in the marketplace um, for quite some time and we're starting to see it. So I was kind of impressed with how selective you are in terms of originations. You really close on relatively few, something like 5% of the companies you put through their paces. Tell us a little bit about that process, and is it just a target-rich environment, and you're taking the cream off the top, or why so few um, actual uh, closes, yeah. given given you know how many opportunities you see worldwide? Well, it's, it's like anything, right? You want to have, from the top level, the platform just really opens up a very broad funnel for opportunities. And and as a result of that, when you're in the market, you're scaled, you're known in the market, you get a lot of opportunities and they're coming in, you know, I want to say left, right, and center, but it feels like that sometimes. What we're looking to do is to pull together the most um, high quality, diverse portfolios that we can that we believe will weather through, you know, through cycles. And so as a result of that, you know, we do have to be very selective as to what we're going to put in there. And we also have to be thoughtful about this exposures, right? When you think about portfolio construction, there's kind of three things, right? There's security selection. Mm-hmm. You know, you're picking that asset you're going to put in there. That's the micro. There's portfolio construction, making sure you have a well-balanced portfolio uh, that's not highly correlated because that's not the exposure our investors are looking for. And then you, you tilt those exposures depending on some conviction you may have. I think in this environment, the first two are, are really the most important. Tilts can can wipe out the first two very easily. So we tend huh. not to, to have tilts. We tend to have well-balanced portfolios that we believe will weather through um, volatility in the market, which we think we're going to see more of in the next 12 to 24 months. Huh. Really, really, really interesting. So, so let's talk about Carlisle um, in general. You guys have been on a, a torrid asset raising pace. You've been breaking categories as has private credit also, so you're in the right place at the right time. Um, Why is this so hot right now? Is it just as simple as uh, there is no alternative, yields are so low on the fixed income side, and you guys can deliver consistent returns without a whole lot of risk and volatility? Well, give you a step back and think about it from the average institutional investor and what they're trying to achieve. And you know it'll it'll vary, but let's use this as a starting point. Let's let's assume that on average, most institutional investor over the long term is trying to achieve seven percent for their beneficiaries. 
in a call it you know a negative real rate environment with you know equity returns have been I think fifteen percent over the since oh nine sure roughly if you get you thirteen know, plus last year yeah absolutely. thirteen plus something like that well. Where where is your long term forecast for equity? I mean, a lot of people would probably tell you public equity long term forecast is probably in the six to seven percent range, maybe lower. I don't know. You do the math on that over a ten year horizon. It's very hard to get seven percent. Well, so, you take six percent, five percent from public equity, and you add in two percent from fixed income, and you blend it at seven. And, and you blend it. At that's seven. the secret. Yeah, you can't yeah. average them. You got to add. You got to add them. And that's how you get to see seven. that. They didn't teach that math in Canada. Maybe that's maybe how our education system was different. <laughs> that that's yeah. the that's the problem with expected returns is we've been hearing forecasted lower expected returns. Hey, markets are high, valuations are high. We've had two, we've, long-term returns are 8%. We've been 13, that was before last year's nearly 28% on the equity side. So you should ratchet down your expectations. After you hear that so long, people sort of stop paying attention to it. This is probably the year where they should be paying attention. Yeah, to and that. I and I think here's the, here's the good thing I, I think about the institutional investor writ large is that they they generally are pretty thoughtful and long term thinkers. I mean, I think that you know sometimes us on the manager side think we have all the answers, but I would say they're pretty smart people that are managing broad diversified portfolios. And I and I believe what they recognize is as a fiduciary, you can't. You know, hope isn't a strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, I hope I keep getting the same returns in public equities. That's a great, <laughs> that's a great thought, but I don't know if that delivers. And so, what people have been doing is there is a trend, demonstrable trend of, of putting some of your cash, if you can be illiquid, into alternatives, private equity, real estate, credit infrastructure, and that trend is just going to continue as we continue to be in this lower rate environment. I know rates are going up, but like historically, they're still very low. Right. And they, I, could, they could go up, you know, four or five increases, and you're still historically low rates. Yeah. That's, I mean, do you remember when LIBOR was like 6%? Yeah. Like I do. I'm, I, I remember when my parents had a mortgage that was 18%. So I, I remember when my father-in-law's New York City general obligation bonds from the 70s that were yielding 18 19% yeah. Came up and he said, "What can you get me?" Like I could get you six percent and four percent munis or six percent, you know, longer term bonds. He's like six percent. Who the hell wants six percent? Yeah. And that was I don't know twenty years ago. Right. So and you would you'd kill for that, right? Today. Right you'd now six percent. Oh my goodness, how yeah. do I get six percent? Yeah. yeah, I remember. I was off topic, but I remember I was I was talking to a guy who asked me. He said, "You know, I'm looking at these Ontario zero coupons." At like 11%, what do you think? I said, oh, I think they're going to go higher. I wouldn't buy them. <laughs> <laughs> How'd that work out? Yeah, he didn't work out well. He didn't buy them, and he's mad at me to this day. So anyway, but, but you know, you go back to this, and you, and you say to yourself, why is it these really smart institutional investors, right? They're not, you know, they, they are smart people who are, are investing money on behalf of a lot of people, rotating into alternatives, and, and the the singular reason is is because they're looking for a pickup in a liquidity that they're getting from being in that asset class. And in my prior employer, CPPIB, they recognized because of the long life of the asset base for them, which is they looked 75 years forward, right. you could be 100% in equities if you wanted to be. Now, the mm-hmm. volatility of that, I don't think stakeholders could handle, but today their, their um, uh, allocation is 85% to equities. So, if you can layer on top of that alternatives, which give you a premium, 
and you can bear the weather, the volatility, then actually you're probably going to return more for your beneficiaries than if you just stayed in public assets. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. But I, th- I think a lot of investors forget the illiquidity premium is there for a reason. And if you don't have a need for that liquidity, you're effectively getting a discount in public fixed income markets. So if you don't need that liquidity, why not take the additional 100 to 200 basis points in returns? Correct. And I think that is that's that is what you're seeing. And that's what's driving it right now. I mean, the, the conversations we have with institutional investors, with consultants today, is very much in that vein, which is you can afford to have this much of illiquidity in your portfolio, you should tuck that away and you should pick up that illiquidity premium. And uh, and there's other, you know, all the academic studies say there's illiquidity, there's complexity, and there's a lot of other things in there. But, you know, when you can pick up 100 to 500 basis points, which is kind of the range, that that's pretty attractive. Especially relative to under 200 basis points right. on, on a 10-year. So so back to the question on scale, where does this top, top out are we still very early days in the growth of all these different types of, of private credit transactions? The way I maybe think about it in terms of growth is there's there's over 1.3 trillion of dry powder in private equity today. And it's probably much higher than that, and there's a lot of people out there raising money. If you think about how much financing that will drive, that mm-hmm. drives at least another- Multiple of it, right? Two to three times, Yeah, you know? 2.6 billion trillion tr- plus of just financing there alone. And that's just in the buyout market. That doesn't include any corporate activity. That doesn't include um, you know other special situations that you know we just don't even account for in that number. So I think the growth is really driven by the fact that the third thing that we didn't talk about is the number of public companies 
today is about half of what it was over 10 years ago. There's more companies staying private for longer. Right. I don't know if the whole SPAC thing is gonna change that a bit, although the run on that's not been great. But I would say people are staying private for longer. And as a result of that, the need for our capital is greater than it probably was 10 or 15 years ago. So I, I, I think the tailwinds are there for you know the next five plus years, for sure. So, so let's drill down to different types of, of um, credit. Uh, and you mentioned infrastructure investments as a sizable piece of the portfolio. Uh, let's talk a little bit about infrastructure. What areas are you investing in? Walk, walk us through the typical credit investment in, in infrastructure. Yeah, well, the infrastructure as a, as a strategy kind of came to me <clears throat> really from my experience at CPPIB where when I was running the infrastructure equity business, I looked at where the credit financing was coming from, even though we we're putting equity in. And a lot of the deals where we would put 20 to 25% equity in required massive amounts of credit. Now, huh. banks generally would provide a lot of that. U.S. banks don't provide anything to infrastructure, very little. They ju it's just not something because of the long-term nature of it. Canadian banks do a decent amount, but guess what? There's not that many Canadian banks. Right. And then the Europeans, but then with some of the uh, financial regulations, it limited how long that duration could be. So my thought was always going to be that the capital markets would be become a more relevant part of infrastructure finance. And that was kind of the thesis. So when I came to Carlisle, the, what I started with on day one is I wanted to find a team that could help build out that business. And we found a very experienced individual and, and who'd worked at a number of places on the infrastructure side, uh, most recently BlackRock, and um, he'd been very successful and built up a very, very large portfolio. Uh, so we hired him. And uh, we've been building out this business, and I can see this being a very substantial part of our overall portfolio going forward, 10, 15% of our overall portfolio. And there's such a great need for it. So when you think about what does that mean specifically, I mean, they're really, I would say, assets that have an underlying rate or regulatory charge that allows you to have more confidence in the stability of the return on that asset than you would in a normal corporate asset. And as a result of that, they can also be longer duration. And a lot of insurance companies, for instance, who are trying to match duration, look at these assets and see them as being very valuable and a diversifier in your overall corporate portfolio. And, and when we talk about infrastructure assets, are we talking about ports and rails and ports, highways or? rails, um, Bridges. Energy transportation. Pipelines. Pipelines, yeah. Um, it could be transmission lines. It could be toll roads. I mean, it, it has various natures, but anything where there is an overriding charge to use that asset mm -hmm. that is, is, is disassociated with the price or volume that's going through it. Makes sense. We talked about um, aviation as a hard asset, but we really didn't get into real assets. Let, let's talk a little bit about real estate and what yeah. you're seeing in that space. Yeah, I think in real estate right now, what is really, really interesting to us is, uh, and it was, you know, as a result of some of the dislocation we're seeing, is really in the opportunistic real estate space. So where we're providing, you know, mezzanine and sort of um, completion capital, if you will. Mm -hmm. You know, the banks are very efficient further up the capital stack uh, and can provide that, but it's really that completion capital. And we're seeing that in very unique and interesting assets. I think the iStar asset that we just announced uh, several weeks ago, 
is is interesting to us because of the triple net lease component really is underlying credit and it's a very diversified portfolio between commercial office and entertainment and i, uh, I read that was about three billion dollars yeah is three billion right? and it's it's a business we want to grow so there's a team there that's well known to us an asset base that's well known to us um roger cozy who we hired uh, actually used to work at iStar and help develop that original portfolio. So we're we're quite uh, excited about that and our ability to grow that over time. Uh, and as 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 a, as everything we try to grow into, we want it to be a ten billion dollar plus type business uh, because that gives us a scale advantage. Huh. And we haven't really talked about distressed assets, which I would imagine, <laughs> having worked your way through eight on oh eight oh nine, must have been a uh, a, another target rich in, uh, environment. Yeah, I think the stress has has gone through an evolution. Um, I th- I believe if you think about the stress twenty years ago, uh, there's fewer people doing it. I think that the um, the efficiency was it was a less efficient market. Fewer participants made it less efficient, so there were you know bigger outsized excess returns to make. I think today, given there's a, a larger number of participants with a lot of cash, it makes it less efficient uh, and it makes it less scalable. Quite frankly. Um, there's a lot of crowding around the larger opportunities, so and everybody piles into them. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at um, the smaller opportunities, they're just really hard. Uh, I liken it to uh, private equity light. I mean, really, if you do true distress for control, where you're gonna take over a company, you really have to have a, a post-acquisition value creation plan, which is really private equity. You've gotta you know, run the board, you gotta, you know, oversee the management team, and you got to create value. Uh, and that, I, look, I think our private equity guys do that really, really well. I think credit people are okay at it. Um, but I think we're probably more interested in what we've been doing lately, which I would call structured equity, minority equity opportunities, which mm-hmm. give you kind of that higher return, something that I wouldn't call opportunistic where we're in that mid, mid-teen mid type range, but higher higher return perhaps with some you know higher risk, as, of course, but where we're working with really good companies and really good management teams where we have really good governance structures, but we don't have control. So, so what does structured equity actually mean? Uh, is this a, a sort of hybrid of equity and fixed Yeah, it income? could be a minority interest uh, position. We've got one where we have a we have a minority interest position where we have some downside protection in terms of excess collateral in the shares. So that to me is, you know, we've limited a bit of our upside, but mm-hmm. we've also taken a big cushion on the downside. It could be pref equity that's deeper into the capital structure than we normally would do um, because of some views that we have on the company. When you say deeper, you mean lower in the yeah, hierarchy yeah, yeah, of yeah. Uh, who gets paid in bankruptcy. Correct, correct. You know, like through through the capital structure, we're, we're, we've created it at a much uh, lower area in the capital structure. The other thing I would I would say what makes us, gives us an advantage there to, to a great degree is being integrated with Carlisle as a global platform. And I think that's the one thing that really turns the wheel for our platform today is that connectivity with Carlisle, who's been in business for over 30 years, owning companies, realizing on them on a global basis, boots on the ground, not only in the US, Europe, but Asia in particular, which is a great growth area, I think, for us. Uh, And having that experience and experience with management teams, countries, and companies you know, it's it's unbelievable how much origination it helps us with. But also when we're making an investment, the different points of intersection that we can get from our colleagues in the private equity side, it's I can't even put a price on that. The, the complementary nature of marrying global credit 
to private equity seems to be, hey, how come we didn't do this before? It really seems to have worked out yeah. nicely for you guys. Yeah, we're, we're like, think of us as solution providers, right? Like, I mean, if you're a management team you're and you're looking to expand, you either sell control equity mm-hmm. or you look for some sort of structured solution. You come to Carlisle, you can go to our bio group who does control equity, or you can come to our group and we will do some sort of structured solution that'll help you achieve your growth objectives. As a combination, that's a powerful outcome mm-hmm. because you get all the benefits of both those groups in one package to help right. those teams grow. I right, think really, I, if, if no matter what your needs are, and I don't want to sound like I'm doing a commercial for you guys. No, not at all. But, but you can se- if you want. Though. But it seems like there. it's kind of amazing to think back 10, 20 years ago when in a lot of private equity shops, Nobody was thinking in terms of credit. And really, it makes, in hindsight, it makes perfect sense to marry, you know, it's like marrying uh, fixed income and equity together. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think, look, culturally, as an organization, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but culture matters a lot. And culture matters a lot to me. I mean, I left a great organization with a great culture, and I'm at, you know, I'm not at the beginning of my career, so I need to go to a place where I thought the culture is going to fit for me. And Carlisle is a very collaborative, very supportive environment, is known as a good partner in the marketplace, and that's that's worth a lot. So when you're talking to a management team, you bring that with you, and they know if they're dealing with Carlisle Global Credit or Carlisle Private Equity, they're getting that same partnership approach. And that's extremely valuable, especially when you're in competition for assets. So, so let's talk a little bit about that for a second. Uh, and I, I'm not asking you to name names, but... Who are your your clients? What sort of entities are Carlisle's clients? Who who do we think of? Um, are are they are they pension funds? Are of they, course, like, yeah. Give, I mean, like I mean ten, at, at, at a ten thousand endowments. What what sorts what what sort of entities are Carlisle's clients? Sure, I would say that. Um, you know, we have all the traditional institutional investors that anybody else is going to have. You're going to have your traditional state pension plans. You're going to have your, you know non-Canadian or sorry non-US pension plans whether that be in Canada or Europe or Australia you're going to have sovereign wealth funds which are a big component of that and you're going to have insurance companies i mean those would be the major institutional mm-hmm. side then we've got high net worth oh really yeah high net worth is uh, for us in credit in particular that's a growing piece how do you of our define business. high net worth cuz every entity has a different line 50 25 100 yeah, I mean, I don't so much define it as to how much they have, but as how big of a ticket. And for uh-huh. for now, we go all the way down to where I think we can take tickets in that are as low as $10,000. So, really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So I know I only have you for a, a, a limited amount of time. Let's jump to our favorite questions that okay. we ask all of our guests. All right. Starting with, let's talk about what, what you were doing to keep yourself entertained during lockdown, what were you watching, streaming, listening streaming. to? Streaming. Okay. Yeah. Well, the two things that I – one I've finished and one I'm still watching. One is called um, – it's called The Bureau or Le Bureau des uh-huh. Legendes, which is – it's subtitles, but it's French. And it's really about the French intelligence agency and their operations – in the Middle East and um, Northern Africa. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because of, you know, really what you do is you have these relatively normal people leading these clandestine lives to affect change and all the complications that go with it. And it's, you know, it's complicated, but it's subtle. It's it's really worth watching. It's probably the best thing I have watched in a long time. Really? really. Wow. 
five seasons. Five seasons, fantastic. The one, the and the other one, and listen, I'm even though I'm Canadian and I did take French for twelve years, I'm really not proficient at it. Uh, so I do read. I watch these with subtitles. Call my agent. Love it. Love fantastic. it. Fantastic. Hilarious. So so every time I discuss call my agent with friends, I always have to tell them in France it's called ten percent, not called call my agent. And all of the actors playing actors are actually they're real, very famous French actors. Yeah. That if you're an American, you may or may not recognize them. Um, but that was such a great show. I really enjoyed yeah. it. I, I, I've not done it yet, but I, I, I quite enjoy it. It's my fun place to go. So, so I'm going to check out the bureau, and you're already on to on to call my agent. Um, let's talk about mentors who helped to shape your career. Yeah, I, I would call them uh, mentor facilitators, if you will, which were people who m- not so much mentored me, but but put, pushed me in certain directions. <clears throat> and I'd say the the one, there's probably three of them, and the one who uh, I initially think of is a guy, Tim Hodson. And him and I worked, Tim and I worked at Goldman Sachs. He was the CEO of Goldman Sachs Canada for a while. He's, he's now the chair of uh, Ontario uh, it's Hydro One, I believe, called the utility up in Canada now. He's also on the board of PSP, which is the um, the sister pension plan to CPPIB. So he, you know, he he's a great guy, and he really um, pushed me to to do different things. He actually is the person who encouraged me to go to CPPIB. But I think the biggest thing he did for me is give me perspective. And I think that's, especially when you're younger, I think you need that and perspective and some empathy, i.e. put yourself in somebody else's shoes and replay back what you said to that person or how you acted in that situation. And that, that had a profound impact on how I operate today. And, and I, I give Tim a lot of credit for things that I've been able to do in my career. The other one, the other two people are really um, David Dennison, who's a former CEO of CPPIB, and Mark Wiseman, who who became the, the um, CEO of CPPIB. And they, they stood behind me at a time when I started a private credit business <laughs> during the financial crisis of 08, 09. They bought into that long-term strategy that I had, um, not dissimilar to the platform approach we have here today at Carlisle. And uh, at a time where we we're going through the deepest, what we thought was the deepest, darkest crisis we'd ever seen, uh, they got behind me and, and rallied board support to get that program going. And Really gave me the lane way to do what was what turned out to be a very successful program for CPPIB, and then finally I would say um, you know my current boss, Kusan Lee, uh, he kind of found me at a time where I was really considering um, starting my own fund, mm-hmm. and uh, and somehow found me just before I had left to start my own fund and convinced me to come to Carlisle. Uh, and really gave me, again, the laneway, the opportunity uh, to build what we've done so far, and we've got a lot more to do. But I, but I, I, you know, I think they're facilitators in many respects. They've, they've listened to what I've had to say and given me some guidance, but, but more or less have cleared the lanes to, to allow me to do what I think uh, is, is the right thing to get the business going. Huh, really, really quite interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites? Uh, what, are you, what are you reading right I, now? You know what? Books are like music to me. I listen to everything. Yeah. Right, so I listen to rap. I listen to '90s rock. I listen to pop. I listen to jazz. I listen to classical and country. And like, you can't really pin me down. And books are kind of the same. I go through periods where I want to understand something. So um, some of the greats I was just thinking about it before I came in here were, you know, as we moved to the U.S., I didn't do a lot of U.S. history, so I read a lot about you know U.S. history. So some of the ones that stand out: Team of Rivals. Sure. Doris Goodwin, fantastic. Um, Ron uh, Chernow has got some great books. I read 
Alexander Hamilton before it became like a play. And I thought, how do you make a play out of that? But like fantastic <laughs> book on somebody who was so prolific in a very short period of time and had such a large, profound impact on America. I think that's fascinating. Grant, I mean, you know, Chernow, another one there where, you know, there's a flawed man who who had his moment in history, uh, right. you know, fantastic. And then, you know, just recently I read, uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning, which is, uh, you know, politics, sports, and sort of merging New York in 1977 where you had the Yankees, Reggie Jackson, right. you had the mayor race, and you had, you know, the blackouts of 1977 uh, across all five boroughs. I mean, it's fascinating. So I really, I really enjoy those things. And then I, I love reading about people who, who are flawed but have achieved, you know, in history great things. So Churchill, for instance, um, you know, I read the Robert Carroll book recently, The Power Broker, which is like massive, but like you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And and now I'm I'm in the process of reading uh, Party in the Waters, which is a, a Taylor Branch book on uh, on Martin Luther King, sort of in the early civil rights movement. So I I'm, I, I like which, a lot of different things. Which Churchill book were you? Talk- I think the best ones, if you want to read, if you just say I want to read one, the definitive ones are by Roy Jenkins, no relation to me, mm-hmm. and then <laughs> Andrew Roberts wrote one recently, and I think that one's a pretty good one. It has some new material and really shows a flawed individual for sure. Huh. As we all are, not all of us accomplished what what folks like Churchill did. Um, Let's talk about advice. What would you tell a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either credit or investment management? Yeah, I you know I, I get this question a lot from junior people. They ask what what should I do, and I and, and I think it applies to a lot of things, not just investment management. And I think the biggest thing you can do is is to be obsessively curious. Because if you're and passionate, if you're not curious about things, like I don't know how you learn, frankly. And so, be early on, you have the ability to be curious in an uninhibited way because nobody expects you to know anything. I mean, you might be brilliant, you might have come out of a great school, but nobody really expects you to know much. And so, that's a great time to be curious about what you're interested in, right? So if it's finance, be curious about that. If it's investing, be curious about that and ask a lot of questions because that ultimately is what's gonna drive you through. And our final question, what do you know about the world of credit and investing uh, today that you wish you knew 25, 30 years ago or so when you were first starting out? Yeah, you know, I'd say the biggest thing that I've I've come to realize is that um, change is constant. Mm-hmm. Change is constant. And I think in investing, we sometimes fall back on history, we fall back on what we know, but change is constant. Some people say it's circular, but I think it's it evolves as opposed to circular. And I think that change has increased dramatically in the 30 years that I've been involved in finance and investing. And if I had of thought about that, I think from an investing standpoint, it would some in some ways, it's influenced how I think about investing today uh, compared to 30 years ago, for sure. Huh. Quite fascinating. Thanks, Mark, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Mark Jenkins, Managing Director and Head of Global Credit at Carlisle Group. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous, I don't know, 396 we've had over the past Eight years, you can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you purchase your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. 
Sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Sean Russo is my researcher. Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Mark Siniscalci is my audio engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.